0: For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Courtney Enlow, and this is Sci-Fi Wire Fangirls Forgotten Women of Genre a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. In conversations around film, it is rare that production and costume designers are placed front and center. Typically, our attention goes to the actors, the director, the writer, while everything else surrounding those more familiar roles is considered secondary. Why else would the Oscars have been so eager to give out so many of their technical awards in the ad breaks, so convinced that their importance is less than big-name celebrities? It's a reductive way at best to look at the great art form of the 20th century, one that rejects the sheer aesthetic thrill that makes cinema so exciting in the first place. That brings us to Japanese designer Eiko Ishioka. You've probably seen a few movies or commercials or music videos filled with lavish costuming and not realized it was the work of Eiko Ishioka. Those clothes in Bram Stoker's Dracula, that's her. The ones in the ill fated Spider Man Broadway musical, her too. She's worked with Bjork, designed for operas, dressed Grace Jones, and her work is on permanent exhibition the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Her Baroque aesthetic, part tradition, and part daring modernity, helped to reshape the production and costuming standards for a whole generation of cinema, particularly in the world of speculative filmmaking. Eiko Ishioka was born in Tokyo on July 12, 1938. Her father, a graphic designer, encouraged her creativity from a young age, but he discouraged her from attending university. To follow in the family business. At the time, the world of Japanese graphic art was heavily male dominated and considered too ruthless for women. Ishioka endured, attending the Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music, and went on to become a designer for the cosmetics company Shiseido. At the age of 26, she became the first woman to win Japan's most prestigious advertising award. During her tenure as a graphic designer in the ad world, She made commercials, and she designed the cover of the Miles Davis album Tutu, which won her a Grammy. She was lauded for the dynamic and decidedly pro-woman approach she took in her campaigns. When she became the chief art director of Parco, a chain of Japanese department stores, she made ads featuring naked women with slogans like, Girls Be Ambitious. One ad featured Faye Dunaway slowly unpeeling and eating a hard-boiled egg. Sure, why not? Ishioka's work was defined by its stark use of red, her favorite color, and her fearlessness with shapes and forms. What seems so ordinary now in fashion marketing, that abstract, almost ethereal kind of advertising that sells a way of life more than a mere product, was brand new when Ishioka made it. Ishioka found her way to film through American writer-director Paul Schrader. Best known as the screenwriter for Taxi Driver, Schrader spent a big chunk of the early 80s trying to mount his passion project, an experimental biopic of the controversial Japanese writer Yukio Mishima.
1: Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas present a new film by Paul Schrader. Mishima. The
0: 1986 film Mishima A Life in Four Chapters is a lurid, dreamlike film that defies easy categorization, contrasting the last day of the life of a legendary writer and infamous armed nationalist with the works he created. High concept and practically goading the audience into viewing it on purely conventional terms, the film is very Aiko Ishioka. Schrader hired her as a production designer, allowing her free reign to create deliberately over-the-top, and purposely artificial sets. This is the story of a man trying to make true art from his life, and Ishioka crafts that with a production design that's part kabuki theater, part manic illustration. The film premiered at the 1985 Cannes Film Festival, and Ishioka, along with cinematographer John Bailey and composer Philip Glass, won a special award for artistic contribution. Not bad for her first movie ever. Arguably, her most iconic work in cinema is her costuming for the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Coppola had seen Ishioka at work on Mishima, which he executive produced, and he knew she would be perfect for his take on one of the literary canon's most iconic novels. He affectionately called Ishioka a weirdo outsider with no roots in the business, which made her perfect for what he was hoping to achieve with Dracula. A film that nobody thought would ever be good or make any money. Coppola was never known for his restraint, and with Dracula, he giddily embraces the feverish intensity of the novel through heightened visuals and an
1: operatic sensibility. Francis called me up to ask me to do a costume design. I fear I'm a production designer. Then if I receive the production design work, I'd do a costume also. Because of the costume, it be a very important part of the uh, uh, set design. At that time, he said, Echo for Dracula, costume will be set. Set is going to be lighting. Ishioka took that concept
0: and ran with it. Half the time, the costumes are doing a better job of creating the characters than the actors. No offense to Keanu Reeves ever. We love you. Take the opening scene where we are introduced to Vlad Tepes, before he becomes a vampire heading off to battle. His armor is obviously impractical, but its design is engrossing, recreating the musculature of the human form, scarlet red and sinewy like tough meat. Lucy's wedding dress, shapeless and topped with an oversized ruff, is designed to look like a lizard ready to perform a mating ritual. Lucy's sensuality is emphasized through dresses adorned with the design of intertwined snakes. Dracula's black cape from every other adaptation is nowhere to be seen, replaced with blood-red cloaks inspired by kimonos. One outfit he wears, a dazzling gold number, is styled like a Gustav Klimt painting. Coppola and Ishioka's Victoriana is one drenched in the unreal, As if everyone has taken LSD before filming, and to this day it is the closest any Dracula adaptation has come to capturing the untapped strangeness of the book. Her refusal to compromise on her vision, one that was a total rejection of the staid middlebrow neatness of Hollywood period dramas, is what helps to make the film so wonderful. And Coppola knew that. He wrote, When you make a movie, you don't get exactly what you want. You never do. You get percentages except for Aiko. She got what she wanted. Her efforts won her the Academy
1: Award for Best Costume Design. Thank you so much for uh, members of the Academy and the Columbia Pictures. And uh, still, I'm sorry, I I need a note to give the speech. Uh, From my heart, thank you to Francis Ford Coppola for this great chance. For his remarkable courage in taking the risk to trust in my work, thank you to all my fellow collaborators and country friends who have helped, supported me a lot. And finally, thank you to Oscar, designed by Cedric Gibbons, the most beautiful designed man. In this planet. Thank you very much.
0: Ishioka didn't work on many movies, but she formed a striking collaborative partnership with director Tarsim Singh that would span four films and allow her to go all out on her visions. Tarsim Singh made his name as a director of music videos, including the one for R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion and commercials. His 2000 feature debut, The Cell, was the first film Ishioka signed on following her Oscar win. The Cell isn't a great movie. It has top-notch performances and great ideas, but it is clearly a case of style over substance. That said, the style though. The artistic influences vary from Damien Hirst to H.R. Giger to Nine Inch Nails and beyond. And while many critics were disappointed with how the story placed such heavy emphasis on masochistic imagery, Ishioka knew that was the whole point of the narrative and built her costumes accordingly. Of Jennifer Lopez's character, Ishioka explained, she essentially becomes a sex toy, so she had to look erotic and uncomfortable at the same time. I gave her a sheer dress, a big black and red wig, and a bizarre hard collar made of plastic. Jennifer asked me if I could make the collar more comfortable, and I said, no, you're supposed to be tortured. And she really did go all out on that exotic fetishism for the cell. Capes that fill entire rooms, headdresses that combine religious iconography with the fantastic visuals of Lovecraft, hairstyles with spikes that seem sharper than any knife. Ishioka was never one for practicality. Indeed, most of her costumes seem cumbersome and exhausting, but the results always seem worth it. She somehow managed to top herself with Singh's next film, The Fall. Filmed over four years across 20 countries, The Fall is a literal fairy tale told by an injured man who wishes to manipulate a young girl into helping him die. It's a broadly drawn tale, the kind of thing clearly made up on the spot, but the visuals are agonizingly beautiful, much in the same way a child's imagination is limitless. Ishioka takes inspiration from seemingly every country and every area of history and somehow makes it work as a cohesive narrative, arguably more so than the movie
1: itself. Greek mythology. Because I feel, you know, the audience is not like a historian or, you know, history channel audience. So audience is expecting something, excitement. So, uh, of course, very interesting... uh, edge between uh, historical research and very far out idea. Always I'm looking uh, both sides. I want to stand t- two legs, is uh, one very far out idea, then one is very traditional uh, historical research. I want to stand both sides and do a uh, center of the, my body to create right answer. Outside of film, she dabbled in a little bit of everything.
0: She designed costumes for Cirque du Soleil's Veracai, which premiered in 2002, wherein she drew inspiration from nature and challenged herself to reinvent the shape of traditional leotards, something that proved pretty tricky for the show's acrobats. She designed the wardrobe for Grace Jones' Hurricane Tour and found in the singer a perfect model for her combination of sexuality, ferocity, and humor. With another iconic musician, she found similarly fruitful results. In 2002, she directed the music video for the Björk song Cocoon, which featured the Icelandic singer Nude and Painted White, singing about the post-coital serenity as red threads emerge from her nipples and envelop her in a cocoon. Ishioka had never done a music video before, and this would be the only thing she ever directed herself. Her first music video ever ended up being banned from MTV because of its supposedly indecent content. In 2008, she took on the epic role of art directing the opening ceremony to the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Ishioka's final two projects best exemplified what made her so unique, even close to 30 years from when she started working in film and theater. The now infamous Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark was intended to be a visual spectacular the likes of which Broadway had never seen before. In many ways, it successfully completed that objective through sheer chaos alone, as actors got injured, sets fell apart, and the creative teams fought endlessly. But one thing seemed to work from beginning to end, and that was Ishioka's costuming. Using the bold palette of old school comic books, but borrowing more stylistically from Greek gods than Stan Lee, Ishioka crafted vibrant costumes that felt instantly recognizable as part of the Spider-Man realm while standing on their own feet. Her final film was another Tarsim Singh collaboration, the Snow White reimagining Mirror Mirror. The film isn't remembered as fondly as the other Snow White movie that came out around the same time, Snow White and the Huntsman. But in many ways, it's a more creatively satisfying experience, which of course came down to Ishioka's vision. Singh told W Magazine, Eiko wanted to evoke a true fairy tale. Mirror Mirror is indeed purely fairy tale in its most undiluted form. Snow White, as played by Lily Collins, is dressed primarily in the colors that define her through every telling of the tale. Skin white as snow, lips red as blood, hair as black as ebony. Red signals beauty, but it also shows danger, maturation, and passion. All things Ishioka loved to embody through costuming, and all of which is perfect for the ultimate story of the loss of innocence. As noted by Justine Smith writing for movie Mezzanine, Ishioka's motif of red represents both danger and growth. Snow White is conflicted and forced to grow up before she wants to. It feels more real, urgent, and relatable. And much of this is owed to Ishioka's costuming. It also helps that the costumes are delightfully silly at times. Army Hammer wears a top hat with rabbit ears. Lily Collins' swan dress involves a headpiece the size of her torso. Julia Roberts, as the evil queen, wears dresses so large she can barely stand up, leaving her lounging luxuriously around the incredible sets as she plots fabulous murder. Some dresses were six feet in circumference, far taller than any of the actresses wearing them. While working on the film, Ishioka was undergoing treatment for pancreatic cancer, but she never slowed down. Singh told W Magazine, she was not well during the movie. She was undergoing chemotherapy. But Eiko only had two gears, full out or no gear at all. Her work kept her alive. It was her reason for being. Mira Mira may have been her grandest piece of work and certainly her biggest. As described in The Hollywood Reporter, the size of the costumes and scope of her final film, over 400 costumes made for the movie, then renting, altering another 600, as well as creating costume masks, jewelry, and sailing ship hats, seems daunting. After her sketches were approved, Ishioka had the main character's clothes built in four New York shops. Eiko Ishioka died on January 21st, 2012 at the age of 73. She never saw the finished film of Mirror Mirror, and her costuming was posthumously nominated for an Oscar. Lily Collins remembers being on set with her as she watched the shooting of the climactic ball scene. She was seeing all of her incredible creations in one scene, and it must have been so amazing and thrilling. But she was always so humble all she did was smile 7 years since her death and 34 years from her cinematic debut the work of eko ishioka remains strikingly original and is still daring to modern jaded eyes her blend of androgyny hyperfemininity humor and experimentation made her one of a kind and not even her most ardent fans have been able to replicate her magic She forced costumers and filmmakers everywhere to up their game, giving them no excuses for relying on the same old methods and clothes to tell the same stories. Ishioka refused to make things easy and saw no reason why production or costume design should be mere window dressing. Why couldn't they tell the story or be the characters as much as the script and the actors? In the end, Ishioka's work is her legacy, the creations of a woman who hungered for a challenge and left audiences starving for more. Tarsem Singh put it best. It's very hard to come up with unique work again and again and again. And Eiko never repeated herself. Her goal was not to be an ambassador for Japanese culture or Western culture. Her goal was to be an ambassador for a new world, Eiko's planet. And she was. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci Fi Wire Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Kaylee Donaldson, read by Courtney Enlow, and produced by Cher Martinetti. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at scifyfangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sci-Fi Fangirls.